If you've been with us since we started the, the book of uh, Revelation, it feels like it was a couple years ago. It wasn't, uh, but we're, we're almost done. This is the, the second to last sermon in our series on the book of Revelation. Next week, we'll, we'll end the book. But if you've been with us, you may remember that the, the, the way that the book is, is structured, we've talked about this a couple times. The book of Revelation has a, has a prologue and an epilogue that serve as sort of bookends. And in the middle of those bookends are these four visions that the Apostle John has while he's on the island of, of Patmos, visions about what the world is, is like and, and, and what's going to, to happen in the future. And last week, we saw this, this vision that, that John has of the, the final defeat of Satan and the final judgment. We saw that what, the, what the future holds for those who, who don't worship the Lord Jesus Christ. But today we're going to look at the last of John's four visions, and this is a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. This is the, the vision of the promised future for God's people. And, and I would contend that this passage in Revelation 21 and into Revelation 22, this passage is the high point of the whole Bible. We're summiting Mount Everest today. This is the apex, the climax. This is the, the place to which everything in Scripture is leading. From Genesis 1-1 onward, it's the, the culmination of God's story, the consummation of His promises to His people. And the view from this peak is absolutely breathtaking. But like the ending of, of any other epic story, the ending of this story will, will only be seen to be truly climactic, truly rewarding, truly magnificent if you've followed the story from the start. We can't just drop ourselves in here and expect to be awed if we haven't seen where we've come from. So for us to understand and appreciate just how incredible this passage is, we need to go back to the beginning. Not the beginning of Revelation, we need to go back to the beginning of the Bible. And so this morning, we're going to take a, a, a whistle-stop whistle tour of the whole Bible, beginning in Genesis 1, tracing our way all the way back right here to Revelation 21. And then we're going to start to work our way through this, this passage in Revelation 21 and see how how in John's final vision, all of these threads from across the whole Bible are, are tied together and brings this story to a, to a glorious conclusion. And here from this vantage point, atop this peak in Revelation 21, we'll see that more than anything else, that the greatest gift of the gospel is the promise of God's presence. The greatest gift of the gospel is the promise of God's presence presence. So, let's start back in Genesis chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. We're going to be turning very quickly, so please stay in Revelation 21. Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and as the pinnacle of His creation, He creates man and woman in His own image. And He tells, he tells us that, that like the rest of creation, humanity is made for His own glory. But human beings are unique in that we're made in the image of God. Unlike anything else in all creation, we alone are made in the image of God, made to experience fellowship with God, to represent His rule, and to reflect His rule to the rest of creation. In a word, 
we are made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In Genesis 2, God plants a, a garden in which He places the man and the woman. And here, in this garden, it is God's purpose to dwell with His people, that they might worship Him and that He might bless them. So the garden, in a sense, then was like a temple, a divine sanctuary, the place where, where God is specially present with His people. So God's intent in creation was for humanity to, to glorify Him forever and enjoy the perfect fellowship and blessing of His presence. But things don't stay that way for long. In Genesis 3, we read that rather than living in perfect fellowship with God, Adam and Eve reject God's wise and loving rule and choose the autonomy that the serpent, Satan, promises. And yet this is an empty promise. And Adam and Eve's supposed autonomy actually leads them into slavery to sin. And most fundamentally, this sin breaches their fellowship with God. They find themselves hiding from His presence in the garden instead of enjoying it. They're ashamed of themselves, and their, their breach of covenant with God brings a curse upon themselves and upon all creation, and they're expelled from this garden temple which was created that they might dwell in the presence of God. They're, they're alienated from God. They're cut off from the life and blessing of His presence, and they're under God's just sentence of condemnation. And friends, this is how every single one of us, starting with Adam and Eve and on down, come into the world, alienated from God, under His condemnation. And if nothing happens to change that, then the Bible says that, that we will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. From this point on, the whole story of the Bible is shaped by this crucial question. How can people be restored to the blessing and fellowship of God's life-giving presence? We get a small hint of it in Genesis chapter 3, even in the midst of God pronouncing judgment on His people. He promises that one of Eve's descendants will undo the alienating effects of the curse. Now, as the book of Genesis progresses, we find that the curse breaker is, is promised to come through a particular family line, that of Abraham. And by the book of Exodus, Abraham's family has become a great nation, Israel. But this great nation is enslaved in Egypt. So God calls Moses to lead his people out of slavery. But, but God is not simply freeing people from slavery to the Egyptians. He's, he's freeing Israel for them to be God's holy nation, a people for His own possession, a people among whom He will dwell. And so the people of Israel leave Egypt and travel into the wilderness to Sinai, and there God instructs them to build a tabernacle, a tent. And he says to Moses, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. 
So they build this tabernacle, and at the, the center of the, the tabernacle was what was called the most holy place, an, an inner sanctuary that was the shape uh, of a perfect cube, entirely overlaid with gold. And this was the place where the, the Ark of the Covenant would be kept. This, in effect, was God's throne room, the place where His glory would dwell amid the people of Israel. And the tabernacle was to form the center of, of Israel's camp, symbolically showing that God was to be the center of their life. And arrayed around the tabernacle were the, the encampments of the 12 tribes of Israel, three to the east, three to the north, three to the south, three to the west. So the, the tabernacle was the place where God was going to make Himself uniquely present with His people. When it was completed, the, the glory of the Lord descended into the tabernacle in a cloud with such overwhelming brilliance that Moses himself couldn't even enter the tent. The tabernacle was also the, the place of revelation. It was the place where God revealed Himself to His people, the place where, where He spoke to His people. And it was the place of, of mediation, the place where Moses spoke to God face to face and interceded for His people. But there was a problem. Like we read in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, God is holy and His people are not. The problem of the curse has not yet been solved and God warns His people that unless they take care to do exactly what He says, His holiness would consume them in their sinfulness. And so the tabernacle also becomes the place of atonement where God accepts the death of a substitute, a, a sacrifice to cover over the sins of the people. In fact, after Moses, the only person who would, who would ever enter that most holy place was the high priest, and, and then it was only once a year, and then it was, it was only for the purpose of making atonement for sin. Though God dwelt in the midst of His people, it was clear that they were still cut off from His presence. A thick veil hung between the most holy place and the rest of the tabernacle. There was no mistake. God was among them, but He was still separated from them because of their corruption and sin. If you fast forward to the book of 1 Kings, we read that the people of Israel are now living in the land that God promised them, and, and Solomon, the king of Israel, constructs a temple in Jerusalem, and this temple would be a, to replace the tabernacle. It was to be a, a permanent place of God's dwelling. And like the tabernacle, at the center of the temple is the most holy place, again, shaped like a perfect cube, overlaid in gold, where the Ark of the Covenant would rest, and God would manifest His glorious presence. But there would still be a thick veil separating the most holy place from the rest of the temple reiterating that this separation between a holy God and sinful people still existed. And just like the tabernacle, when the temple was completed, the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the most holy place, and the glory of the Lord descended upon it in a cloud and filled the temple with such magnificent power that the priests could not stand to minister. And God promised Solomon, He said, I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. But he also warned Solomon that if he and the people were to turn away from God and break covenant with him, 
and worship and serve false gods. He said, I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. So how do things go? Well, if you know the storyline of the Bible, you know that things don't go so well. Frankly, if you know human nature, you could guess that things aren't going to go so well. Israel's history is one of, of long bouts of idolatry interspersed uh, with, with sporadic revivals. But despite their, their persistent unfaithfulness, we, we read in Second Chronicles that the, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to Israel again and again by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, scoffed at His prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people and there was no remedy. In Ezekiel chapter 10, the prophet Ezekiel watches in a vision as the glory of the Lord that had descended to the temple to dwell in the midst of Israel departs, leaves the temple while the people of Israel worshiped idols in the very place constructed to be the dwelling of God. Not long afterward, the temples destroyed, the people of Israel sent into exile in Babylon as punishment for their idolatry, and yet God had not forsaken His people. God promises that He will return to shepherd His people Himself. He promises that there was going to come a time when He will make a new covenant with them, and He will put His Spirit within them. His presence will not simply be among them. His presence will be within them. And the book of Ezekiel ends with this strange vision. Ezekiel has a vision in which God brings him to a high mountain to behold a great city. And an angel guides him through this vision in which he sees this, this massive rebuilt temple, one that absolutely dwarfs Solomon's temple in size. And in this temple, there's no mention of a veil blocking the way between the most holy place and where the people are. And as the vision continue, continues, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord, which departed Solomon's temple, and he sees it returning to the temple the same way that it left, kept coming over the eastern mountains. And like when the tabernacle and the temple were completed, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord filling this house once again. And then Ezekiel sees something strange. He sees a river flowing out of the temple. And this river, Ezekiel is told, is a river that brings life. And on either side of the river, Ezekiel sees trees, and these trees bear fruit. They bear fruit every month because they're watered by this life-giving river. And the leaves of these trees never wither. But he is told somewhat cryptically, these leaves are for healing. And then Ezekiel's vision comes to a close as he sees something of this, this city in which the temple is situated. Specifically, he sees that the, 
Like the camp of Israel in the wilderness, the, the temple is at the center of the city, and the city has 12 gates, and those 12 gates are named for the 12 tribes of Israel, three to the north, three to the east, three to the south, and three to the west. And the book ends with this glorious promise that, that the city that Ezekiel sees says, the name of that city from that day shall be the Lord is there. And when the people of Israel return from exile, they rebuild the temple, but it's, it's nothing like the temple in Ezekiel's vision. In fact, it's smaller. It's far less glorious than Solomon's temple. And we read in Ezra 3 that some of the older men who had returned, who had seen and remembered the glory of Solomon's temple, wept when they saw how this second temple paled in comparison to its predecessor. Not only that, but, but unlike the tabernacle and unlike Solomon's temple, when this temple was completed, the glory of the Lord does not descend to fill it. God's promises through the prophets that He will again come to dwell among His people still await fulfillment. The people's return from exile and, and reconstruction of this temple, that is not the fulfillment of what God has promised. And after this, there are 400 years of silence. But then suddenly, we read in the Gospel of John, the Word who was in the beginning, who was with God and who was God, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that Word dwelt is the same word as tabernacle. God had come to dwell with His people, but not in a temple made by human hands, in the temple of a human body. All of these strands from the Old Testament come together and meet in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Jesus is the true temple, as he tells the religious leaders in John chapter 2. He's the true place of God's dwelling, as we read in Colossians chapter 2, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's the true place of revelation, the place where God is truly and fully and finally revealed. As the author of Hebrews writes that in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. He's the true place of mediation, as Paul tells us that there is one God and that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And He is the true place of atonement. As again, Paul tells us that God set Christ forth to be the place where true and full atonement for sin is made by His blood. So Jesus, the, the Son of God, becomes a man, he lives a perfect human life and is put to death on a cross, not for his own sins, but as we learn from the book of Galatians, taking upon himself the consequences of the curse, the consequences that were due to us as a substitute for us, that through his death we might be reconciled to fellowship with God. And as he dies, the veil in the temple that separated God and man is torn in two from top to bottom. 
Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, just as he told the religious leaders in John chapter 2, destroy this temple that is himself, and in three days I will raise it up. By his resurrection, Jesus proves that all his claims were true, and he proclaims his victory over sin and death and Satan and the curse. And friends, it is through Jesus' death and resurrection that you can come into a right relationship with God, restored and reconciled fellowship. Apart from Him, your eternity, as we saw earlier, is eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. But the good news of the gospel announces that you can be reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Apart from Him, there is nothing but death and destruction, both now and in eternity. But with Him, through faith in Him, there is life and blessing, fellowship with God, both now and in eternity. And if you will trust Jesus to bear the curse in your place, then life and salvation will be yours. Then Jesus ascends into heaven, but not without the promise that He will return again one day to live among His people. But even then, Jesus did not leave His disciples alone. He promised them that He would send them His Spirit to dwell in them, just as God had promised in Ezekiel. And in Acts chapter 2, on Pentecost, the the Spirit descends on the the fledgling church in Jerusalem like fire, mirroring the the descent of God's presence to dwell in the tabernacle in the temple. And the imagery is clear. The church of Jesus Christ is now the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place of God's dwelling. The Apostle Paul affirms this when he tells the Corinthians, you, Corinthian church, you are are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Likewise, Ephesians 2, Paul writes of the church as a temple, saying that that this temple has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, and that in Christ, the, the church is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling for God the Spirit. So we see from the garden all the way through the church that God's purpose in redemption has been to restore men and women to glorify God and enjoy the fellowship and blessing of His personal presence. And as gloriously true as that is, that we, the body of Christ, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God is present among us, it's not the end of the story. We still walk by faith and not by sight. We still await the return of Christ and the final defeat of Satan, the end of sin and death and the curse, the renewal of all things, and the return of the the unhindered, unmediated, unrestricted eternal presence of God. And that brings us to Revelation 21. Look with me at Revelation 21, starting in verse... Nine, and as we read through, notice how many of the threads and the themes from across the whole Bible come together. Verse 9, and one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, come here, 
I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This echoes Ezekiel's mountaintop vision of a future magnificent city, a massive temple. The holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. The only other place we read of something being described as having the brilliance of a jasper stone is in Revelation chapter 4, but there it didn't describe the appearance of a place. There it described the appearance of the one sitting on the throne. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates were 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. You see the parallels with the camp of Israel and then the the city from Ezekiel's vision. In both of those places, the place with with God's house is is at the center and it's surrounded by the 12 tribes of Israel just as it is here. The imagery is clear that this is the place where God dwells among His people. Verse 14, The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, connecting to Paul's statements in Ephesians 2 that the the church, the new temple that is the dwelling place of God by His Spirit is built upon the foundation of the apostles. Verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and its width and its height are all equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. I'm glad John told us that. Don't focus so much on the, the numbers and the size, but, but look at the shape of the city. It's a perfect cube. And the only other place we see anything like that in Scripture is the most holy place in the tabernacle and the temple. This, this vision of the new creation shows that the new heavens, the new earth, in their entirety is the most holy place, the place of God's dwelling. Verse 18, the material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper and the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase the 11th jacinth, and the 12th amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Notice that the city is shaped like a cube and is made of gold, overlaid in gold, just like the most holy place. Verse 22. 
and I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Unlike Ezekiel's vision, there's no temple in this city. Why? Because God is there. And He Himself is the temple. There doesn't need to be a place where God dwells, especially among His people, because now the earth is filled with His glory as the waters cover the sea. There does not need to be a special place of dwelling, a place of revelation, a place of mediation, or a place of atonement, because like at the end of Ezekiel, in this city, the Lord is there. Verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or of moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The glory of God fills this place. Just like the glory of God filled the tabernacle and the temple, so the new heavens and the new earth is filled with the glory of God's presence. In the daytime, for there will be no night. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination or lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then he continues. And then he showed me a river the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and the Lamb in the middle of the street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of this tree were for the healing of the nations. And this is almost identical to what Ezekiel sees in his vision, a river that brings life coming out of the temple, bearing with, with trees on either side, bearing fruit every month, leaves for healing. And here the tree is specified to be the tree of life, and that brings us all the way back to Eden, the original temple. The way that had been cut off from Adam and Eve because of their disobedience has been opened. The tree of life is no longer off limits. Now its fruit is given for food to God's people. Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. Finally, this wonderful news, the curse is ended. The consequences of sin that have plagued creation since the fall are finally and forever done away with, but even this is not the end. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. This, this is the peak. The throne of God is there God dwelling in the midst of His people and they will see His face. The, the glorious purpose for which God's people were created and redeemed in Christ is realized. Perfect, perpetual fellowship in God's presence. This is the highest good 
the greatest gift of the gospel, the place to which everything is pointing, the promise of His unveiled presence with us. Verse 5, there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. This is not a temporary arrangement. This is eternal blessedness. And then John's final vision comes to a close as the angel speaks to him again, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who hears the words of, who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. It's extraordinary. Everything in this passage makes some reference to the promise of God's presence, the size, the shape of the city, the material it's made out of, the arrangement of the gates, the foundation, the glory of God being there. Everything in this passage is directed towards this one primary point, that the great promise for our future is the presence of God. Everything picks up on and fulfills what God has promised from the very beginning for His people, that He will dwell in His place under, uh, His people will dwell under His rule. And He likewise will dwell among them to bless them in His presence. Now, this might actually go against some of the assumptions that we may have about our future. See, if if you're a Christian, when you think about your life in in eternity future, what, what do you primarily imagine? See, I think for many of us, we tend to think in terms of release from challenging circumstances, pain, the things that we're surrounded by and experience, sickness, sorrow, death. We think in terms of freedom from our own sinfulness, or we think in terms of freedom from other people's sinfulness. We think in terms of being freed from the consequences of the curse, and of course, all of those things are true and desirable. But one of the things that sticks out in this passage and, and, and as we survey the whole Bible from this, this high point is that freedom from the curse and its effects is not our highest good. It's not the ultimate blessing of the gospel, nor should it be our greatest desire and our hope. See, we're not merely redeemed and rescued from something. We're redeemed and rescued for something or more accurately for someone. The greatest gift of the gospel is not primarily the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, regeneration, justification, sanctification, adoption. All of those things are tremendous blessings for which we praise God. They're gifts of God's grace, no doubt, but the greatest gift of the gospel is the promise of His presence. Look again at the passage. Do you notice how much John describes this city, the new heavens and the new earth, in terms of what is absent? If we were to start back in Revelation 21, verse 4, we see God is going to dwell among His people, and there's going to be no death, 
no mourning, no crying, no pain. Skip down to verse uh, 22. There's no temple. Then there's no need of sun or moon. There's no night. There's no closed gates. There's no sin. There's nothing unclean. There's no curse. But don't miss this. The reason why all of those things are absent, it's not just because God takes them away. It's because God himself comes. There's no death. Why? Because God is there and He is making all things new. There's no mourning, no crying, no pain. Why? Because God Himself will be among them and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's no temple. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb is the temple. There's no need of sun or moon. There's no night. Why? Because the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. The gates are never shut. Why? Gates are shut because of, of danger, but there's no danger because the Lord is there. There's nothing unclean and no sin. Why? Because the Lord is there and only those who have been washed and justified and sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus, whose names are through faith alone written in the Lamb's book of life, enter. And there's no curse. Why? Because the throne of God and the Lamb is there. Everything good about this place is good because God is there. Everything in this passage, all of the threads that are picked up from across the entirety of the Bible, all the descriptions of John's visions of the new heavens, the new earth, everything points to this one central truth. The most important thing about the future, your future, if you are a Christian, is that God is there. This is our, our hope, not just that there will be no more curse, but that the Lord is there and we shall see His face and dwell with Him forever. And as we contemplate the glory of that day, we're to be greatly encouraged. Christian, this is your future. You will see His face. You will see His face. And his name will be on your forehead. You will be his and you will reign with him forever and ever. Believe it. Like the angel said, these words are faithful and true. But these, this glorious truth doesn't only offer us great encouragement. It also offers us a gentle challenge. What would you consider to be the highest good that you could experience? What do you treasure? Where's your hope? What do you most desire will be there in eternity? Or when you read Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4, what stands out to you more? That there will be no curse or that you will see his face? Is what you are looking for a release from your circumstances, your struggles, your sins? Or are all those things just effects of that one great desire for the presence of God? Do you have a tendency to think in terms of the, the presence of God's blessings and the absence of the effects of, of sin, but to forget that the greatest gift of the gospel is not what He gives nor what He takes away, but the promise of His personal presence? Or think of it this way. If I could promise you that in the new heavens and the new earth, everything 
that you love about this world would be there, and there would be no sin and no pain, but Jesus wouldn't be there, would you be satisfied? And don't skip to the Sunday school answer. No, of course not. Examine your heart. You see, a passage like this is not meant only to be a solid foundation for our our hope, but to reorient our lives around what should truly be our hope. Not just the absence of suffering, sin, and struggle, but the personal presence of God, our Savior. See, in the gospel, God doesn't simply offer us stuff. He offers us Himself. And if this is to be our future, it can affect our present, that our highest good now is not simply a change in circumstances, a removal of struggle, the presence of blessing, but communion with the risen Lord Jesus. If the, if the sum of our future is going to be beholding the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ, then it would be appropriate for us to acquaint ourselves with Him well now. While we have to wait until He comes again to make all things new and to enjoy this, this unmediated, unhindered presence as we read here in Revelation 21 and 22, we can enjoy communion with Him truly now. As we speak to Him in prayer, as we hear from Him from His Word, as we gather with His people, and He is truly among us as a temple of the Holy Spirit. For you who weary and are laboring under the effects of the curse and struggling with sin, Jesus offers you rest for your souls now with the sure and certain promise, behold, I am coming quickly and we shall see His face. Let's pray. Oh God, forgive us for so easily loving and desiring what You give and not loving and desiring the One who gives. Lord, thank You that You have redeemed us by Your blood, that You have purchased us for God, and that one day we will see Your face. There is nothing that we can say or describe that will do justice. No human words can adequately capture that glory. My Lord, we pray that you might seal these promises to our hearts and that our hope would be that we will dwell in the presence of God in the house of the Lord forever. In Jesus' name, amen.